listening to Unlimited Hangout. I'm your host, Whitney Webb. It should be clear to regular listeners of this podcast that we live in a time of extraordinary deceit, and that such deceit is regular and now normalized behavior on the part of both the private sector and the public sector. For those that spend a considerable amount of time analyzing how such deceit and accompanying uh, acts of corruption and criminal activity are so commonplace and rarely, if ever, investigated, it quickly becomes clear that the way we have been conditioned to believe the world works That is, the public sector oversees and regulates the private sector to prevent and prosecute illegal activity and so on is a deliberate fabrication. Critical questions that arise from this realization include the following. What is the role of the public sector today if our governments are in fact not setting policy and not fulfilling their purported roles? Who then is actually creating policy? Is it merely the private sector having overtaken the public through corporate capture Or are there other groups and structures who were driving the decision-making processes of both the private and public sectors behind closed doors? The examination of the bigger picture of who is actually creating and driving policy in the real power structures of our world today has been fraught with problems for years, as different commentators and analysts have often sought to point the finger at only this group or that group, obscuring the tapestry of different factions and institutions vying to be our overlords. However, the task is nonetheless an important one, and it wasn't until I stumbled upon the recent work of my guest today that I had seen what I consider to be the most rational and cohesive explanation for the current power structure that is not only responsible for our current situation, but also that which is driving us into the so-called fourth industrial revolution and more aptly named techno-fascism at full speed. Joining me to discuss his critical work, not just on his analysis of the powers that be, which he aptly names the Global Public-Private Partnership, but also his work on the multiple and multifaceted layers of deceit that have defined the COVID-19 crisis, is Ian Davis. Ian is a writer and researcher based in England who writes at his website, In This Together. He also contributes to the UK column in Off Guardian and is often featured on the Corbett Report, among other independent media outlets. And he is also the author of several books, the most recent of which is entitled Pseudo-Pandemic on the COVID-19 Crisis, which is currently available through his website. Thanks for joining me today, Ian. How are you doing? I'm fine, Whitney. Thank you very much for having me on. Absolutely. My pleasure. Well, um, I already mentioned in introducing you that your name for the powers that be, as some may call them, is the Global Public-Private Partnership, or the GPPP. <laughs> uh, but before we get into that, I think it might be useful First, to define stakeholder capitalism, a term that we have all been hearing from the World Economic Forum Davos crowd more and more over the past few years, uh, partly because the way you define the GPPP uh, relies on people knowing exactly more or less what that term means, and not everybody does. So, Ian, how do you define stakeholder capitalism? Stakeholder capitalism, as it's presented to us, is essentially a deception. So the 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 idea of stakeholder capitalism is more is a more responsible model of capitalism that people would be um, you know the global corporations NGOs uh, philanthropic organisations all come together to to form a new model of of capitalism which takes into account the problems of our times so. It's initially it's presented to us, and this goes back to the 1970s when um, Klaus Schwab first started from the World Economic Forum, first started talking about stakeholder capitalism, that it was a way 
it was presented to us as a way for um, what we might call global capitalists to take a more responsible role in the stewardship of the of the planet. Um, you know, and obviously, uh, the, you know, when we're talking about the environmental problems that we face and so forth, that they that they were suggesting that that they recognised their role in contributing to the problems that we that we face, and that they were um, ready and willing to take an active part in doing something about that. Which, on the face of it, sounds you know reasonable and perhaps something that most people would applaud. Unfortunately, that is not what stakeholder capitalism is actually about. Stakeholder capitalism is a way for stakeholder partners, which are those partners that I just mentioned there. So we're talking not just um, global corporations, but also government, also um, philanthropic organisations, NGOs, uh, global charities, civil society is something that come, very much comes into it. These stakeholders will take an active role in essentially forming the regulation of their own markets. So they will take a more of a, of a, a political role in forming the regulation of markets. So partners within the stakeholder capitalist network include governments. So we often hear governments say that they are working with their industry partners. That is a a literal, we should translate that literally. They are working with people, with, with global corporations, with NGOs, with philanthropic organisations on an equal partnership basis. Which, of course, if you are a corporation, having control over the regulation of your own market is a very enticing prospect. And that is essentially what that's what stakeholder capitalism really means, rather than the image of stakeholder capitalism. I'm really glad you made a distinction between how they sell what they sell stakeholder capitalism is and what it actually is. Um, because I think that's uh, really important really important point there. Um, what's interesting, uh, to me personally is that some of these stakeholders that they, that they, uh, propose to include, include, uh, NGOs that are essentially backed by, uh, quote unquote philanthropists who themselves are the heads of the multinational corporations. And then you have, you know, the, the, the public sector, uh, the, the governments, right? So it's really, uh, ultimately just comes down to, uh, you know, sort of as you say it, a, a public private partnership. Um, but, um, in, in, in talking and sort of fleshing out, um, your, um, definition, um, of, uh, this global partnership, um, in a recent article that you published on your website that was republished by some outlets like Off Guardian, uh, you include a graphic that I would encourage people, uh, listening who are interested to go ahead and, and look up because it sort of lays out, um, the hierarchy, um, of this partnership. Um, so, um, why don't you start, I guess, maybe by explaining your, your theory here, I guess, um, uh, about how, uh, this system is, is sort of set up, uh, and, uh, you know, who you put at the top and why and, and so on. Yeah. So, um, I've looked at, um, basically how policy flows around the planet. So how, how, where does policy originate? Who distributes that policy? How is it enforced? 
how is it sold to us and and what is the impact of that policy upon us now uh, most people i think see the world in what we might consider to be a, a, in terms of a westphalian model of national sovereignty and that and to a great extent that's 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 still true i mean countries can't one country can't make laws in another country that is true and national sovereignty still exists however when we look at things uh, at the world governance level and i would draw a distinction between governance and government um we can see that there is a centralized for many policies which are, uh, are policies that we that we are familiar with um there is a centralized global hub which formulates those policies in terms of policy agendas um so the question is who is forming these policy agendas so uh, you know i think a good example of of a policy of policy agenda is sustainable development so sustainable development goals have have impacted us right down to the local level there doesn't pretty much anywhere you live on earth if you go to a, a search engine of your choice and put in the local area where you live and follow that with sustainable development plan or something similar you'll be able to find your local sustainable development plan or or you know in, in similar words so this policy impacts everywhere on the planet at once but it but so how does that happen how does how is it possible that everywhere on earth could be you know have have this very very similar policies no matter where you live where do they come from well there is a historical uh, precedent for global public private partnerships or gpps which is a, perhaps a bit of a mouthful uh, it historically comes from um global health policy so it was um it was the documents such as in 2005 that uh, connecting for health um where the world health organization spoke about um a changing world of revised expectations so in in 2005 uh, the world health organization were saying that governments would no longer lead on policy and in fact within the gppp they don't lead on policy they they are partners in the policy i mean it's it's arguable that they're not even creating policy that what they're actually doing is they're part of the policy distribution and enforcement network rather than forming it themselves but in that document um the the world health organization said that governments can create an enabling environment and invest in equity access and innovation so government has ceased to be leading on the policy but is rather through taxation um and debt you uh, we we could say as well um is is basically creating the markets for the stakeholder capitalists because because the two both concepts of the global public private partnership and stakeholder capitalism are intertwined mm-hmm. so so if we look at the global public private partnership itself the first thing we think is well who's making policy well we need to look at the the kind of global think tanks and you know people like the world economic forum arguably they have been a policy 
conduit and and originate a i mean you know when we talk about the great reset that is a that is a set of policy agendas basically um and and from that we get governments talking about build back better which uh, that goes back to the united nations so i mean you've you've got these global authorities that that develop ideas and kick around global agendas and uh, at the top of that you, and fundamentally it's an we're looking at economic control of a global economic control so you know if we think about at the top of the of the hierarchy we might have the bank of international settlements so the the bank of international settlements which are the central bank for central banks who you know have got a rather murky past um you know certainly there was uh, they were accused of um laundering nazi nazi money and gold money um you know so but anyway the, the bank of international settlements are, uh, are extremely powerful global financial institution um and you know then perhaps the, around them obviously we've got the national central banks now, there is some debate about how money is created, um, but for now, and unless we're going to go into that in incredible depth, and I, I would, I would um, advocate that people read a paper by Dr. Richard Verner, um, and I will, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, the name of that paper, um, but he basically proves that money is created out of thin air, and he calls it fairy dust. Um, and I <laughs> well, and, like that name for it. <laughs> yeah, fairy dust. Uh, but I mean, I, I mean, but genuinely, he empirically proves it. And then there's been a lot of debate about the source of money and how money is created. But um, he does empirically prove how it is created. So I think that paper by Dr. Richard Werner is well worth reading. Um, so let's say that the, the top of this financial system, we've got the Bank of International Settlements, followed by the central banks, who control global flows of capital. So I think it's important when we're perhaps trying to introduce this to people um, to, to stress that, that there is a centralised authority, perhaps we could call it, who control the global flow of money. So that is a power, which, of course, <laughs> you know, I mean, that that I think I think pe most people don't realize that, 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 that there is anybody or any group of people who are capable of doing that. But there are <laughs> and they really do control all money. So if you've got that power that, you know, that gives you ability to certainly to be able to steer policy. And then we've and then we've got you know what we might call the the, the global think tank so organizations like chatham house the royal institute of international affairs um, council on foreign relations these kind of people club of rome people like that who develop policy agenda and I, and collectively we might call this group the policy makers people who i mean we could look at sustainable development and how that has come from um, you know, in the in the 1970s and 1990s, the Club of Rome, uh, the, the, you know, in their in their book, The Limits of Growth, 
talking about um, what we today call the, you know, climate change and how that could be used to um, basically, I mean, they openly declare in the book yeah. that, they, you know, humanity would be, what, I think I can't remember the direct quote. I, I can't either, but I think it's in um, the article Unlimited Hangout published on, on Klaus Schwab by, by uh, Johnny Vedmore. We, we talked about it at the end because, of course, the Club of Rome very intimately tied to the origins of the World Economic Forum and also um, the Rockefeller family in this particular book. Um, it's, it's something to the effect of this is how we can make humanity the enemy, um, of our, of our narrative, something like that. Um, and, and they're, they're, it's, it's quite astounding to read in, in retrospect. And I think it was in the nineties, if I'm not mistaken, uh, that particular book, maybe the late eighties. Yeah. 91, I think it was, uh, limits of growth. Well, limits of growth is a paper from the early seventies, but there's this, the, the, what you're talking about is a, is a book they produced. I think in the early nineties, it may have the same title actually. Um, but huh. yeah, I, I, yeah, I forget this. Was it seven? Oh, it doesn't matter. Does it? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we're, we're talking about broader stuff here, not the, the minute details of, of, of the club of Rome. So, you know, it's, but, but essentially, you know what you're saying and it's, it, it's provable and true because I, I, you know, we've written about it and, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's definitely verifiable is that a lot of that narrative that we, that's been so cemented, uh, in, in a lot of public, uh, the, the consciousness of the public today about climate change and environmentalism more broadly comes from these Club of Rome policy papers and, and, and written works, uh, from decades ago. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. So when I was talking about the global public private partnership, you've got these people at the head of that that are a centralized authority on a global level who can make policy agendas. So then that gets bounced around inside the think tanks and the think tanks end up that ends up going to what we might call the policy distributors. So the people who distribute distribute governance. So they're not distributing governance, they're not creating law, they're not making legislation but they are having an impact on law and legislation at the national level. So, and and introducing policies at the national level in exchange, for example, um, you know, relief, relief money, aid money, as to, such as the IMF. So the IMF, the IMF will, um, you know, they'll, they'll have a, um, an agreement for, for financing in exchange for a set of policy commitments mm -hmm. so so they're not i mean I, I think it's debatable and one thing i would say about this this network that i've kind of drawn out in the in in the article and in the book is it's fluid you know i mean i think i think it's debatable about you know to what degree do the imf actually make make policy or contribute to the development of that policy you know so so it's uh, but it is it is the centralized source of policy that then that then cascades down through national government to us. Right. Yeah, I, I think it's a I think it's very apt to say, for example, that the IMF, you know, gets its policy from from a lot of these think tanks that you laid out that it then, you know, uses its uh, role as this global financial institution to then uh, essentially uh, you know, uh, carrot and stick national governments into complying or implementing uh, those policies, sort of a bridge from the policy makers to 
um, policy enforcers, as you label the, uh, the national governments in this, in this system. But I do think, as you sort of alluded to a second ago, there is a, a, a certain degree of, um, I don't really know <laughs> what to call it, maybe cross pollination, uh, between these. Yeah. So for example, you know, the, the World Economic Forum, their board of trustees includes, um, central bankers, uh, a, you know, sort of a, above them in this, in this hierarchy. Um, but also the head of the IMF, for example. Um, and then, um, you know, uh, some of these, uh, ostensibly private institutions that in the case of the U.S. Central Bank, the Federal Reserve, uh, tend to have uh, a considerable amount of control and influence, like BlackRock, for example, which I believe is essentially the world's biggest investor. Um, you know, they, they yeah. sort of, uh, have a fluid position in this. Uh, as well, but more or less, it's it. I I, I really feel like it's a, you know essentially what you laid out, and I, I do want to stress too that you know there are a lot of these global think tanks. The World Economic Forum, of course, has been uh, at the forefront of what's been going on recently, and the Great Reset and all of that. What they used to call, um, as you note in your article, the global redesign process. <laughs> which is a much more yeah. Uh, yeah. telling name. I think they realized they had to make it a little less um, obvi- <laughs> obvious, maybe um, give it a, a slightly shorter, snappier name, perhaps. Um, but they're, you know, so, so uh, they've been sort of at the forefront and they basically produce policy for every area of society where some um, other think tanks in this, in this zone, I guess, um, like the CFR, for example, tend to focus more on what, like foreign policy, um, and things like that. So some are sort of more specialized, some are more, mm-hmm. uh, broad. Um, one I would add maybe would be like the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in the U.S. Yeah. Um, but there's yeah. a lot of these groups, too many of them, one could argue, but they also partner up between them. Um, you know, like the WEF and Carnegie partnered up to, uh, uh, produce some, some of these papers about ending financial anonymity and online anonymity, um, and things like that. And you also place, uh, the Rockefellers up there who are another, uh, <laughs> quite fluid group, uh, in, in terms of their, uh, longstanding Wall Street ties, uh, and ties to these, uh, policy setting bodies, uh, or, or creating bodies like the Club of Rome and some of the CFR Trilateral Commission and some of these groups as well. Uh, but, uh, nonetheless, I think the hierarchy you lay out from policy maker, policy distributor to policy enforcer, and then to us, the s- policy subjects, the subjects, um, is, is, is honestly very apt and a very, uh, useful hierarchy for sort of explaining how this works to, uh, people that, um, you know, haven't really, uh, thought about this that much because, you know, with the World Economic Forum being so out in front and center, a lot of people in the past, I don't know, year and a half that maybe um, weren't investigating or looking into the space very much before may be inclined to think, well, it certainly looks like Klaus Schwab is running things. And eh, I mean, you could sort of argue that, but it's definitely a much uh, more complex uh, situation than just uh, the World Economic Forum is driving all of this in and of themselves, um, you know. Yeah, I think I think the important thing is 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 people tend to want to identify a, an enemy or a bogeyman or a you know a, some kind of uh, Svengali that they can say, oh yeah, this, this person's the, they're the ones that are doing it, you know. And this is in, the, in as you said, it's far more complex than that. And this is a, a global network of of shared interests, right? So 
I mean, one of the things that, that people often say is, well, how could you possibly keep all these people in line and, and how could you, you know, how could that possibly operate? Well, obviously, if you, for a start, if you control the flow of finance, that's a fairly big stick to be able to, to uh, hold people together because even multinational corporations need access to finance. So, you know, that's that's ob- the obvious way that it could be done. But but also I think that it's important that these, these people are working together collectively for a, a shared broad set of goals. It doesn't mean that they all agree with each other and they all want to do the same thing at the same time. And, they you know, I think this idea of a, and one of the things that I've tried to stress in the book is this is, it is an extremely powerful organization and network which is shaping global policy. But it's formed of people who are fallible and who have their own agendas and, you know, they can fall out with each other and argue about, you know, so it's, it's not, um, it's, it's not an insurmountable enemy to face. And, and I think that's one of the, when we talk about this kind of information, it can very quickly kind of descend into feeling hopeless because you kind of think, well, how can anybody, how can we ever possibly challenge something like this? But the point is, it is, it is a group of people who are just like the rest of us. So if we understand who they are and what they are doing and how they are doing it, then we can challenge it. But we need to be realistic about who these people are and and how. And that was very much my intention in the book was to try and show this network and say exactly that, 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 that these aren't these aren't infallible demigods. You know, they're they're just a bunch of of very, very powerful and influential people who have got their own agenda and and, and are working collectively to achieve it. But they're a small number, and we are, by comparison, a vast number. Right. And but though, of course, what these guys are quite uh, adept at doing um, is divide and conquering uh, us, the policy subjects, <laughs> um, exactly. and, and keeping us sort of siloed uh, from each other. But it's worth noting that those same, uh, not the same divisions, but there are also a lot of divisions, as as, as you alluded to a second ago, um, within this sort of elite, uh, structure, there's different factions, different interest groups, and, you know, more often than not, they have shared interests, but sometimes, uh, they're competing interests in certain facets of these, um, larger plans or, uh, emerging markets and, and different things. They don't always have, uh, they don't always see eye to eye and then tend to have, uh, you know, uh, they, they fall out with each other as, as you mentioned. And I think, you know, as, as, um, their efforts, uh, advance, uh, I think those rifts will become more apparent because a lot of these people, uh, given the, the crazy sociopaths that they are, um, well, you know, the more control they obtain, the more, uh, fighting over the spoils they may engage in. Um, so that's uh, a hope that, um, I have because, you know, once the divisions among them are, you know, um, more apparent that can uh, be used to hopefully the advantage of the of the public, or at least in the sense of uh, allowing the uh, certain groups of the public to see um, more of of the big picture of what's uh, been going on, not just uh, in the past year and a half, but especially in the past year and a half, um, among yeah. among other things. So, um, 
really quick, I wanted to ask you, um, uh, you make a point to differentiate between global government and global governance. And I think this is a really important distinction uh, because, you know, some people may have be familiar with, you know, the, the, the rantings and ravings of, of Alex Jones, for example, um, who has been talking about, oh, they're going to install a global govern, government, uh, that you, um, have a, have an interesting way of approaching this subject because essentially what you posit with the global public private partnership is that it's really a system that we already have more or less of global governance. There isn't really a need, uh, to create a, a blanket, quote unquote, one world, uh, government. So could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, government government make law and legislation. They make, you know, they they as we're all familiar with our our government, our so called elected government. They legislate in our country and and create the laws by which which are what the rules that we are supposed to live by. Um, you know, within within the boundaries of of the nation state. And they have different perspectives. So the government, the US government, you know, has a clearly has a different perspective probably to the Russian government and the Chinese government. So if you were, if you were going to create a system of global government, you would have to have quite close alignment and agreement between all these different nations. So all these different national governments would need to be on the same page if you were going to have a global government. But governance works by creating a policy agendas rather than hard and fast legislation. So governance means that you can introduce ideas into policy discussion. So that means that you can disseminate the agenda into every nation on Earth simultaneously without, you know, stipulating hard and fast legislation or even necessarily the specific form of those policies, which again, but that has another advantage in that if you're trying to to pinpoint how policy is formed, it's like trying to nail jelly to a wall because because you know they can there, there is no kind of legal culpability there. There's no liability because organisations like, for example, the Club of Rome. You can't you can't accuse them of of legislating and making errors in, you know, hard and fast law and policy in that extent, because they're just the ideas people or that's how it's portrayed. But they've got the economic and financial and political might behind them to actually enforce those ideas upon national governments so it but it's it but it's it's done through um non-legislative means and that means that you can introduce an idea into many nations at once without having to um go down the path of government well aptly stated thank you so in in returning to sort of this um or, or, or in continuing sort of this this line of discussion you know when people have talked in and fear mongered and, and what have you, not necessarily wrong in their fear mongering, right? About, um, uh, the threat of global government or the one state or, or what have you. Um, you know, there's been a lot of focus on the United Nations specifically, right? Um, and I found, um, in your recent article, um, I'd never seen this before. I was quite taken aback by it. 
Um, it was a, a speech given by a former, uh, UN Secretary General Kofi Annan, uh, who, uh, spoke to the World Economic Forum in 1998. Um, and I, uh, well, of, of course, when he gave the speech, he was head of the UN, right? Um, yeah. Uh, and I just found it, um, <laughs> wow, uh, really telling, uh, specifically because, you know, the UN relies so much on the perception of it as sort of this, this college of governments all coming to work together, the sort of League of Nations idea. Um, and, you know, that they, that they essentially are working, uh, with only governments, right? And that it's all the governments are coming together to negotiate among themselves and, create global policy, but they're, you know, ostensibly elected governments all coming together to do that. So it sort of has this, uh, and I think that's a necessary illusion uh, for them to maintain in terms of, uh, you know, the public uh, actually listening and, and caring about uh, what they have to say and, uh, and, you know, among other things. For for people listening, I, I, I would like to read that quote, if that's okay. So um, in, in this speech that you quote, uh, Kofi Annan says, the United Nations has been transformed since we last met here in Davos. The organization has undergone a complete overhaul that I have described as a, quote, quiet revolution. A fundamental shift has occurred. The United Nations once dealt only with governments, but now we know that peace and prosperity cannot be achieved without partnerships involving governments, international organizations, the business community, and civil society. The business of the United Nations involves the businesses of the world, end quote. So, Ian, uh, what do you think uh, Mr. Inan is saying here? Well, he's, he's selling stakeholder capitalism. That, that, is, that, is, the, that is stakeholder capitalism. It, it, puts, it puts, you know, global corporate interests at the centre of, of policy creation. So, so the, the, I mean, the, the um, World Economic Forum, um, they have global, they, they created, I think it was in a two, 2010, they created global governance councils. So these global governance councils, the list is unreal, the number of, they have got global governance. They have a, so many, yes. Yeah, they've got global co- governance councils for everything. You know, I'm, I'm sure if you look hard enough, there's probably a global governance council for pet care. I mean, they, they, there is, there is, there is no part of our lives that they haven't got a global governance council for. And the, the express purpose of those global governance councils is to advise policymakers. So bearing in mind that Nobody has elected anyone. If we, I mean, we talk about the democratic model, and you know, not obviously, not every country in the world follows a democratic model in 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 the same way. But there is no democratic accountability with the World Economic Forum, for example. And the World Economic Forum are just one of the members of the global public-private partnership. But 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 through these global governance councils. They are setting the policy agenda for all nations, and you know, and it is it is through organisations, you know, and and through. I mean, everybody is probably perhaps familiar with the Davos 
get together. But of course, that is just a moment, one moment in the year when they they all have a bit of a soiree, and I'm sure there are some some important discussions that go on behind closed doors. But this is an this process. Davos is just a one day out of the year, but the 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 process that it embodies that Davos embodies is every day of the year. <laughs> right. You know mm-hmm. this this is this is the the kind of discussions that are that 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 are um, pushed at Davos or celebrated at Davos. They're happening all the time. Yeah, they absolutely are. Um, it, as an example, you know, I'm doing this um, investigation um, on on Moderna right now. Uh, the first part, as we're recording this, is out. The second uh, part should be out probably. Uh, well, it will be out this week, but it may be um, the day after, day before this uh, particular podcast comes out. Um, remains to be seen. But anyway, um, Moderna is part of this um, g- uh, global growth company community that's run by the World Economic Forum. So only chosen uh, corporations and startups are allowed to join. Um, and essentially, the, the 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 main selling point of being named this by the World Economic Forum is that you're given access to a platform that the World Economic Forum hosts that allows your company to connect with uh, privileged uh, leaders in the private and public sectors and in finance. Um, so this is, you know, they have <laughs> literal like messaging platforms and communications platforms to facilitate um, this exact type of activity uh, 365 days a year. So if, like you say, it's not just uh, Davos week or they're uh, yeah. where they're visibly together. Um but I think, you know, a lot of people that try and um, poo-poo this, sort of like uh, Naomi Klein uh, did in the Pyramidiar uh, billionaire-funded intercept uh, last year, saying that, you know, concerns about uh, the Great Reset are a, I think she called it a, a conspiracy smoothie or something like that, was was essentially saying, well, they they plan all this out in the open and they show their faces at Davos. They're not really you know, doing all this stuff behind the scenes. Well, I mean, how, yes, they are, <laughs> you know, like maybe they're not um, doing it necessarily when they, when they are public about it and they do their public panels and have their public meetings at, at the, the World Economic Forum annual meeting that, that week in Davos, Switzerland, the Davos event. Um, but they have these, these private platforms where they're, uh, facilitating these, these partnerships all day long. And it's not just the World Economic Forum that does that either. No, I mean, I, mean, I think, I think if you look at sort of any kind of policy consultation document, anything that comes out from, I mean, obviously I'm based in the UK, so I tend to look at the, the, the British ones, but you know, the US, France, Germany, wherever you look. If you look at a policy consultation document, just look at the contributors. Just look at the list of contributors and follow those names. And and you will see the same organisations cropping up time and time and time again. So, you know, it's it's to, to say that, you know, that this is... Um, I mean, one of the things I suppose that Klein might have been right about in terms of saying... You know that they that why would they expose themselves to this and people like Klaus Schwab and people like you know Bill Gates and people like that they have got a huge propaganda and and media machine um, public relations operation around them 
and they are able to to come across as as selling nothing but goodwill to all men and women that that is they they're able to present that public face i mean uh, you know if you could go back to the old you know the the, the way that, that edward bernays for example changed and and people like ivy ledbetter lee and people like that changed the fortunes of the rockefellers you know from a despised despised family to you know to these sort of sort of kindly old man that's going around giving out dimes and so this kind this kind of operation enables them to stand in the glare of in the public public glare and and seem like that they've got nothing but the best of intentions but of course if in order to understand it's easy you know talk is cheap so in order to to understand what their real intentions are you need to look at the impact of their policies and when you look at the impact of the policies it's horrendous yeah <laughs> It's 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 you know you you think how can this come from a, a from a place of goodwill? It can't. Yeah, I think actually what you uh, uh, that brings up a really good point, and I think it was unfortunately very absent uh, when talking about people like Bill Gates, for example, in the past year and a half, specifically last year, uh, where he came under a lot of I guess um, scrutiny, uh, perhaps. So he was also much more in the public eye than he normally is. Uh, but before, you know, he was sort of treated as this public health expert in the in the COVID era. You know, he was a, a major evangelist for the so-called Green Revolution, um, which was essentially a, a lobbying operation <laughs> for Monsanto um, and genetically modified foods um, and, and all of that um, on, on the uh, developing world. And, um, you know, if you're familiar with the uh, spike in uh, farmer suicides in India, or, um, you know, a number yeah. of related <laughs> issues, you know, that is essentially the, the consequences of his so-called philanthropy and, and goodwill, you know, originally sold by Bill Gates and, and others, um, as though it was going to increase yields and, uh, you know, end hunger. It's, it hasn't done that at all. Instead, it's, um, you know, it didn't actually, it, it didn't provably increase yields at all. Um, but what it did do is, you know, basically, uh, trap, uh, lots of, uh, small family farms and, and, and small scale farmers in debt traps leading to, in India specifically, um, a huge spike in suicides among other problems like environmental contamination and, and what have you. And really, uh, looking at, you know, his, his role as quote unquote philanthropist there, uh, you know, as a precedent to his quote unquote philanthropy, um, in the COVID era, I think was unfortunately, um, absent. Um, but, uh, yeah. you bring up a really good point with, uh, this, this whole philanthropist thing, cause this has sort of been, um, a, a theme that comes up in, in my work more often than not, specifically with things like the, um, uh, my work on, on the Jeffrey Epstein case, because of course, before he was, um, arrested the first time around 2007 or so, um, you know, he was, uh, treated in the press as a, philanthropist Epstein himself and he was actually very much involved um with this new shift in philanthropy that took place in the early 2000s um and Epstein himself was intimately involved uh, in in this to considerable degrees because some of the the most um I, I guess important uh institute philanthropic institutions to come out of that shift uh were the Clinton Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation of course we know that Epstein was um, considerably involved with the philanthropy of both the Clintons and, uh, and the Gateses. Um, 
But also I would put, you know, like the Michael Milken, the uh, junk bond king and uh, financial criminal felon crazy man uh, who uh, uh, the Milken Institute is his um, ph- philanthropic endeavor. And of course, he's now treated as a philanthropist, despite, um, you know, having been one of Wall Street's most notorious criminals previously. Um you know, it, it really has been, uh, since the time of Rockefeller, as you mentioned, in the early 20th century, um, a major way that people are able to, uh, launder their reputations, um, and so they can still, so, you know, they can engage in this type of activity, but then come out, um, you know, on the TV and, you know, are essentially treated be- through these public relations, um, institutions, uh, w- with the help of, of these public relations institutions are treated as, you know, um, our great benefactors, um, in a sense, you know, it's really bizarre. So, um, I mean, what I think, I think it's quite remarkable that, that, that there are those that don't appear to need to do that. I mean, people like Christine Lagarde, you know, that, that, that can go from head of the IMF to the ECB and just, just and have, having been, um, you know, convicted for essentially, you know, uh, for financial misconduct. And the, and the and people just kind of don't question that. Well, there's, it's I think yeah. Well, I think that has to do with the lack of media coverage about <laughs> um, about her specifically, right? Um, uh, I mean, she's not the only one. Um, no, not at all. No, but it's uh yeah, it it is quite astounding. Um, so in the interest of sort of um you know um mitigating some of the um efforts by some perhaps of uh. Uh, saying, you know, Bill Gates is in charge of all of this and he's the one to be looking at. Uh, what role would you put someone like Bill Gates and some of these other, uh, billionaire philanthropists and, and sort of your, your model? Where does someone like Bill Gates fit in in the, in the GPPP? Um, I think, I mean, I would say, my, I, 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 well, the honest answer is I don't know, but I mean, I would say policy distributors. But I think, you know, in terms of certainly people like Schwab and Gates have been the faces of two different aspects of what I've called the pseudo pandemic. So Gates has very much been the kind of or he was in 2020 since his, you know, since his divorce. Um, and I and I don't know whether that will have any bearing on your forthcoming book. Um, he seems to have gone rather quiet. But I've noticed that he's been creeping back into the limelight recently. But, I mean, for one thing, I mean, he has had a series of meetings with the British Prime Minister. I think he had three in 2020. They've just sort of welcomed him for another one recently. Um, so I would say policy distributor, somebody who is who is uh, meeting and greeting political leaders uh, and is part of the net of, of the distribution of of policy agendas. Um, and, and, and I would argue the same probably for, you know, someone like Klaus Schwab, who, who, um, you know, I mean, has been, has been presenting the kind of econ, you know, been the sort of face of the economic reform. And as I must say that is a very strange choice for someone to present, um, you know, the case for global, um, economic reform, but, um, yeah, you know, he's he's quite Bond yeah. villainy, so it is kind yeah, of odd <laughs> that he would be odd, chosen. Odd kind of, but I mean, I suppose you know he he has been involved in, um, you know, I mean, 
writing some i mean and this is something else that you don't really know i mean to what degree and when we talk about the book the great Re- reset to what degree did thierry mason have in you know writing that you're right mm-hmm. he, yeah i mean schwab takes the credit <laughs> but um you know did he, he, he are these even his ideas i mean i think it, there's some case to be made in schwab's case that they are but, well, stakeholder, I mean, stakeholder capitalism and, and, and ha- selling what that system actually is a stakeholder capitalism, probably a better way to, to put it. Uh, as you mentioned uh, earlier on, you know, he's been doing that since the 70s. So I think that's part of why he's sort of um, the face of this, because he wants to be. He sees it sort of as something that his life's work, uh, you could argue. Um, and, uh, that, that's probably why, despite, you know, maybe there's obviously someone who could be a better, uh, <laughs> choice in terms of optics. But I think maybe, um, he, he, uh, Schwab may sort of just be the first face for it because we have things like the, um, Council for Inclusive Capitalism, um, as it's called. And that is actually headed by the Pope. Um, which is, which is interesting. So it's very possible that, you know, maybe, uh, Schwab is the face of that, uh, or has been recently, uh, but, you know, the Pope could, um, <laughs> uh, come out and, and issue a call for that. I think he actually has relatively recently, but it could, you know, um, uh, increase in, in terms of its, uh, uh, media attention and, and what have you. It's worth noting, by the way, that that Council on Inclusive Capitalism, um, pretty much the same people that are members of that are also on the World Economic Forum Board of Trustees. Um, uh, in, with the addition of, you know, some people like Lynn Forrester de Rothschild, um, the Lauder yeah. family, uh, who are sort of part of that mega group, uh, power faction, uh, of, of Epstein related fame, if you're familiar with my work on the case anyway. Um, but, you know, just, uh, so several factions of the global elite are, are very willing to back this particular thing. So maybe Schwab is, is the face for now and wants to be sort of the, be seen as the progenitor of the movement publicly, even though a lot of people in, in, in these networks know that he is, right? I think he sort of wants that, <laughs> that role for himself before maybe more, uh, other faces maybe take the, uh, take some of the limelight in that sense. Yeah, I mean, well, you'd say, yeah, I mean, what's it? Oh, I forgot his name. Is it Larry Fink, head of um, BlackRock? Yes. Uh-huh. I mean, he, he's very willing to speak out. <laughs> oh, yeah, he loves to. He goes on CNBC almost like every day, it seems like, saying uh, something else. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's also on the World Economic Forum Board of Trustees. And um, yeah, exactly. if you're familiar with the work of uh, John Titus and, and Catherine Austin Fitz, was very involved in the whole... Um, uh, setting Federal Reserve policy. So BlackRock, I think, in this hierarchy um, that you established has an interesting uh, role, um, particularly in the sort of the policy maker sphere, uh, because they exert influence on central banks or the world's largest investors. So they exert a lot of influence over just tons and tons of corporations, um, depending on the size of their stake. Um in those particular corporations. And then of course, you know, he's on the, uh, Fink is on the, the board of the World Economic Forum and probably some of these other, um, global think tanks as well. So that's sort of an, a very interesting, uh, organization to look at. And of course, Black, BlackRock is, are, you know, the most powerful in that category, arguably, but you also have like Vanguard and some of these other yeah, major investors as well that do that. And I think, um, <clears throat> 
think I mentioned this on my last podcast, but I'm not entirely sure, but the whole ESG investing, uh, I don't know how much you yeah. looked into that, Ian, but it's, um, I think, yeah, <laughs> I, no, I think BlackRock I mean, will I'm, be, oh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, one of the, I, I looked at that quite a bit in the book. Um, the, I mean, I've spoken about how, and, and in your um, recent article, um, Wall Street's takeover, takeover of nature, um, I've spoke very much about what I've called the theft of the global commons. Because the global commons is, I mean, what that you were talking about, it is the the resources that all it is actually defined as the resources that all life depends upon. Um, and that definition came from, um, I think, the UN in a in a um, it was a, a September 2011 issue of a of a, a magazine called Our Planet. I don't know whether you've ever read it, written by the by the UN, um, and they defined the global commons as quote the shared resources that no one owns but all life relies upon. And that's been, and, and shorthand, that has been, you know, called the commons or, and these were, this is one of the things that well, I think is also important, that's something else I try to try to address in the book, is these words get bandied around and people say things like, yeah, well, we're, you know, we're talking about stewardship of the global commons and that kind of goes over people's heads because they, they rarely kind of look at what that means. Right. And that these these words have very, very specific meanings. Now, the World Economic Forum have said that they want to be trustees of the global commons. <laughs> yeah. Well obviously, well, well, obviously, trustee has got a very specific legal meaning. It does. But basically, what are the global... The, the global commons have become... have been expanded over the years. I think it was... Um, it was a Secretary General, um, Antonio um, Gutierrez. He gave a speech in December of last year where he expanded upon the global commons. Um, and he said that um, it was, um, it was uh, to put it simply, quote, this is a quote, to put it, to put it simply, the state of the planet is broken. Human activities are at the root of our descent towards chaos. So, again, it's the idea of humanity being the the, the cause of everything. Uh, The recovery from the pandemic is an opportunity. It is time to flick the green switch. We have a chance to not simply reset the world economy, but to transform it. We must turn this momentum into a movement. Everything is interlinked. The global commons and global well-being. This means more and bigger effectively managed conservation areas, biodiversity positive agriculture and fisheries. More and more people are understanding the need for their own daily choices to reduce their carbon footprints and respect planetary boundaries. From protest in the streets to advocacy online, from classroom education to community engagement, from voting booths to places of work, we cannot go back to the old normal. We have a blueprint. The 2030 Agenda, the Sustainable Development Goals and the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. Now is the time to transfer, transform 
humankind's relationship with the natural world and with each other, end quote. So they are, they are talking, when they, when they talk about the global commons and something that you, you very much touched on in your article, they mean everything. They mean, they mean everything. They intend to have control over all resources, all, all kind of land, the oceans. I mean, initially the global commons was, de de was defined as, um, the oceans, uh, Antarctica, um, of oh, the atmosphere. So the air we breathe and space. So the universe. But they've been constantly adding to it. <laughs> adding well, to the ownership of the universe. I like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So now that so now they're getting now they're getting more specific. So now it's land. It's all land. It's all um watercourses. It's the food that we grow. It's everything. It's the they air also. The, the ecosystem the processes that make, uh, you know, allow life to exist, which includes the process by which carbon dioxide is turned into oxygen by tree leaves. Um, you know, those are the types of natural assets and, and the article of mine that you're referring to. Um, yeah. these people are seeking to monetize. And I like how in, in your book, you, you note that, you know, the sustainable development goals are essentially to create new markets. Um, this natural asset corporation is about creating a whole new asset class that per their estimates is significantly larger than existing assets. So it allows essentially, um, the, the Wall Street system, uh, to have feeding frenzies for decades to come while, you know, uh, essentially distributing among themselves the control of these, uh, global commons, um, you know, in, in their hands. Um, why everyone else, you know, in this, this is fundamentally a neo-feudal model. The people on yeah. the bottom, you know, have sort of this social credit, sustainable development credit, <laughs> whatever you want to call it, carbon credits, um, you know, that, that dictate what they can and cannot do. Um, why these people, you know, will just, <laughs> uh, I don't know, just have the, the longest grift spree imaginable, perhaps. <laughs> um, uh, with, with this stuff, but it's being sold as the green movement. And it's just astounding because this is really a banker driven, uh, movement, if anything else. And I think there's nothing more indicative of that than the fact that the, the head of green finance at the UN is Mark Carney, the former, uh, head of the Bank of England and also Bank of Canada, a central banker's central banker. Um, you know, and for, uh, former Goldman Sachs as well. I mean, uh, I think that's very, um, uh, uh, very much a validation of, of your, uh, hierarchy here where you're putting, uh, central, a lot of the central bankers at the, at the, at the top of this <laughs> hierarchy because really it's, um, you know, these are the guys that are driving a lot of this. Yeah. So Carney, Carney spoke at the Jackson Hole Symposium in 2019, where they came up, where BlackRock presented the idea of this, of going direct, which means basically central banks putting money into, um, you know, the, the, the feeding money directly into, into, into the economy instead of, instead of central banks being the central banks for other other banks because at the moment the model works at the moment where commercial banks they they use base money to settle their accounts but the money that we use every day isn't you know is not is not base money it's broad money but 
that that system is changing. That's what going direct means. So going direct means that central banks will control fiscal policy. So if central, if central banks control fiscal policy, I mean, what does governments do? They raise taxes, they spend money, they start wars. I mean, other than that, bank government doesn't do much else. So what they're suggesting with going direct is that central banks have control, direct control of government fiscal policy. And that is a coup d'etat, a global coup d'etat. That is a fundamental change in 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 the way that that we and the, 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 I think the important thing is it's 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 happening it is happening that going direct is absolutely in play at the moment but we're still labouring under all these illusions that you know that the governments that we elect are still in charge and as then that that is as long as that continues that they're going to carry on rolling out this agenda because we fundamentally misunderstand how power structure how the power structure works yeah so until until we get our heads around that we're lost yeah i don't i definitely agree with that which is why um i have been very vocal about the fact that i don't vote and that i don't think that any anyone that thinks that the current mess we are in is going to be resolved at the ballot box at this stage um I think are sorely mistaken because essentially you're just, um, you know, selecting your enforcers, not the people actually driving this. Right. Um, and I think yeah. that's, uh, why, um, this discussion of, of this, this hierarchy you've sort of laid out is, um, is so important. Um, but I think what's, what's, uh, also demonstrated, uh, by this conversation in terms of how do we stop this is the fact that so much of this has, so much of their power has to do with, money and financial control. And so, you know, uh, and obviously the CBDCs, um, central bank digital currencies, the subject of my, of my last podcast, you know, obviously that, um, is a, is a, is a step in, uh, is demonstrative of that, that they're trying to recreate, uh, the economic system to exert even more control. And, and, and it, it's really a cornerstone, um, of everything else. But, you know, I think it just underlies the necessity of, of beginning to develop and participate in, uh, parallel financial systems is really the, the best way to challenge this. Um, uh, what are your thoughts on that? And do you see any other sort of, uh, solutions here, uh, for how we may, uh, perhaps one day, <laughs> if the public can get their, their shit together, um, uh, confront the global public private partnership? Yeah, and I and I don't think it's um it is that complicated actually because um you know the whole purpose of of nearly everything they do and I think we we've, we've got a window of opportunity the whole purpose of everything they do at the moment is to control us. So controlling us is like like um somebody might control a herd of cattle is 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 very important to them. And I mean, when they're trying, they're trying to manipulate us in not only into accepting the policies that they foist upon us, but into believing in them. Hence, all the propaganda and all the disinformation and all the and all the attempts to coerce us and cajole us and push us and, you know, into into where they want us to be. So obviously, the whole purpose of their of in order for their their scam to continue we need to comply with it we need to we need to go along with it otherwise it won't work for them so it's very simple really in many respects is that we just need not to comply with it 
But in order for that to work, it needs to be on a mass scale. Because if 80% of us comply with it, then the other 20%, you know, I don't think they're too concerned about that. And I think, you know, going back to where we started this conversation, that's that might be where we're at at the moment. Um, you know, that they're, they're, they're at the point at the moment, certainly with things like uh, we've just seen uh, the health secretary recently in the UK, Sajid Javid, openly say that they're, they're, they're going to sack people, uh, doctors and nurses who don't take the vaccine. Now, that is pretty draconian thing for a politician in the UK to say. The NHS is a is a it's almost like a religion in the UK. And for them to just openly declare that seems to suggest to me that they're not too concerned anymore about public opinion. So and that's worrying because I think when we get to the point where they're not concerned about us, then that means that the agenda is ready to move forward um, and the outlook is bleak. If we look, if we look at things like um, sustainable development, for example, every single aspect of that policy, if we look at how that's been applied in the UK, we're talking about net zero policy. It is difficult to imagine how we would be able to generate the energy that we need. We would be able to sustain, you know, using using so-called sustainable um, energy that we would be able to run the run the uh, the industry and run um, our society the way it is structured at the moment without there being a lot less of us, a lot fewer. Sorry, a lot fewer of us. I mean, it, you look at things like like getting rid of all vehicles and having electric vehicles by by twenty fifty. Well, there isn't enough. There aren't enough raw materials on the face of the planet. Even to build, even to equal the current um, yeah, uh, vehicle uh, use that we have, even if it, it 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 means that either very very few of us will have access to independent transport, very few, because you know there isn't enough cobalt, there isn't enough lithium, there isn't enough of these natural resources on our planet to replace the vehicles that we use. Well, they plan to move away from the private car ownership model. I wrote about this um, last year. I mean, they they came up with this in 2019. Um, Well, this was in the U.S. This was uh, the U.S. military intelligence community in Silicon Valley, the National Security Commission on on Artificial Intelligence, uh, basically laying out this model. And I'm sure it's the same one the, the U.K. plans to follow. Um, as well as essentially a, a system of electric vehicle uh, driverless Ubers. Um, and, you know, if you have enough uh, funds from your universal basic income or credits or what have you, then you will be allowed to uh, partake in, in that specific transportation system. But the uh, I think they fully plan to have the uh, era of private car ownership be a, a thing of the past and have it be this ride-sharing uh, thing part of the uh, you know the the world economic forums you'll own nothing and be happy type thing where you're also yeah. you know not no longer a homeowner or a landowner you're renting everything you know the uh, sort of a, a the gutting in its entirety of the concept of of i guess private ownership really of of anything while these guys at the same time are taking private ownership of things like the air you breathe and the water um that's yeah, the quite astounding yeah <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean that go. 
that's an interesting point that you bring up there because what are we talking about if we don't have access to private transport? One of our one of our inalienable rights, and I'll make a distinction between inalienable rights and human rights, is the freedom to roam. That is a that is a fundamental fundamental inalienable right for human beings on this planet, the freedom to roam. And we've been very fortunate in sort of recent history that we've been able to roam quite far because we've had access to our own personal transport, our own private transport. If that goes and you are reliant upon a third party providing you that service, then the question has to be who controls that service? Because it's not you anymore. Your inalienable right to roam has just been significantly restricted. And I think that's how the how we should approach the solution to this. We need to focus on our inalienable rights and our freedoms, and we need to exercise them. Because the solution, the, the, the whole point of what they are trying to introduce, the Great Reset, Build Back Better, whatever you want to call it, the whole point is centralised authority. It is centralised authority over everything. So the solution to that is decentralised freedom. That is the solution. So we have to construct something, a way of life, a way of living, a way of interacting with each other that is based upon decentralised freedom, not centralised authority. And we need to reject that centralised authority. And that means non-compliance. But non-compliance doesn't necessarily mean, don't get me wrong, I am all in favour of protesting and I'm all in favour of legal challenges and I'm all in favour of, of all that we need to throw everything we can at this um, and any means, you know, peaceful means, any peaceable means that we can throw at this to challenge what is happening are all well and good. But at the end of the day, when we think about how we are going to live a more decentralised life of freedom in the face of what is a global tyranny, we can do that just by focusing on the things that we do every day. So just by focusing on the choices that we make on a daily basis. So for one thing, you spoke earlier about not voting. I mean, I agree with you. I would never vote. I mean, I you know, personally, I think that voting is morally repugnant, but that's another kind of, I, you know, I digress a bit there. But the point is, there's no point voting because what what are you doing? You're all you're doing is legitimising the system that is and putting your energy in a a, a dead end, yeah. <laughs> basically. Yeah, you're you're, mm-hmm. you're just you're just yeah, like they're like they're like a succubus that are taking all the energy out of you, and you're pursuing what. You're pursuing a change, a change. It's not going to change. A cosmetic change, maybe. That's about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the people you elect are not setting policy. So it doesn't really matter who you elect because they're not in charge. So, you know, there's that. But, I mean, there's other things like we, we regularly just buy our propaganda. We just go out every day and buy our propaganda. And that's how that's how it gets into our living rooms. That's how it gets into our into our hands and onto our devices. We just we just go along with it. We click on the links. We in the UK we have to pay a TV license. We did that. <laughs> yeah, that was a shock for me having to to obligation to pay for the BBC even if you refuse to watch it. <laughs> exactly. That was silly. Yeah. Okay. 
but but it's those little things. If we if imagine if like twenty thirty percent of the British population just stopped paying their TV license, just said no, we're not paying it. What are they? What can they do? You know that that would send that in that way we can resist this that is coming far more effectively than we can by through certainly through political means. I mean, the idea that I mean, even if there was a, a political party that came along that that promised to stand up for our inalienable rights and was going to restore the restore the freedoms that have all that have been taken from us during this pseudo pandemic, even if there was a political party that, that, that had a chance of being elected, which is extremely remote. This simply wouldn't be allowed to happen. I mean, the. the there would be so much. When we we had a similar situation not long ago in the UK with uh, uh, a, the former leader of the Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, who, you know, I mean, whether you believe in politics or not, he did seem to be a genuine kind of, um, you know, sort of democratic socialist alternative. He was dismantled. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, he was just politically assassinated. From both sides, not just from his, from their, from his, the conservative Tory side, but from his own side, because there is an, there's an establishment clique in in Parliament, and when we talk about, you know, who who understands this agenda and who doesn't, I think there are some people in in Parliament, as you and we were talking about this earlier, prior to the prior to the podcast. There are some people who do who do understand what's going on, and and you know, and have got a reasonable idea of what the agenda is. But I think the vast majority, the rank and file of of, of politicians in in Parliament in the UK, certainly, they don't really. I think they they still believe in, you know, the party political kind of to and fro, as if they think they are going to make a change. But when they get into power, they never do, never. There has there has not been a political party elected, arguably since 1947, that has ever done any kind of significant change in the UK. It's just a continuation of the same policy trajectory, and it, you see the same in the US. I mean, how many how many policies which the you know the Democrats absolutely lambasted of of Trump Trump's policies have just continued. <laughs> yeah, it's always like that, though. But yeah, I mean, people that are still willing to vote for Biden, I don't even know how to talk to those people <laughs> anymore at this point, you know, uh, just because if you didn't see it with Obama, and you didn't see it with Trump, uh, yeah, you probably won't ever see it, even if um, the current US president, um, you know, can't even make a coherent sentence half the time. It's a uh, crazy times <laughs> uh, to, to believe in the in, in the illusion of democracy, at least in the US. I mean, uh, you really have to engage in some really impressive mental gymnastics to think that uh, Biden is uh, the leader of the free world at this point. Um, you know, well, I assume there's people that still believe that, <laughs> um, you know, and it's just, um, wow, how do you do that? <laughs> I mean, there was a there was a farcical thing um, that went on at the uh, last year in in twenty twenty or was it beginning of this year? I can't remember. But there was the G seven summit was in Cornwall in in, in the UK. Yeah, 
And so what came out of that was, so so if we go back to this Jackson Hole meeting that happened in August of 2019, they basically agreed at Jackson Hole that they that this was the G7 bankers. They agreed that um, they would just continue quantitative easing. They would just keep printing money for, for fun. They would just 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 hugely, massively increase the money supply. And we just keep pumping it, pumping it into the uh, what was a completely failed international financial and monetary system, which they admitted at Jackson Hole. They said they basically called it a busted flush. They admitted it was over. It was broken beyond repair. It's <sighs> so been a good run, so, guys. Yeah, it's been a good, it's been a, we've had a good laugh. <laughs> we've enjoyed it, guys, but it's finished. You know, let's, we need a new one. It was basically what they said at Jackson Hole. Move on a few months. And the the G7 leaders meet at the G7 conference in Cornwall. Um, and the, the media report that um, Joe Biden has decided to not, well, I think I can't remember how they said it, not rein in, not rein in the financial um, spending. You know, they've decided to carry on with the quantitative easing. That is Joe Biden's plan. They, you know, I mean, you couldn't make it up. I mean, it's ridiculous. Joe Biden, obviously, it's not his plan. (laughs) (laughs) It's not. I mean, it's, it's, you know, whether he can, as you said, string a sentence together, he certainly hasn't got been sat anywhere with his policy advisors deciding that the, the the world needs to continue with quantitative easing. I mean, they, they've since been forced to admit, like John John Kerry, uh, who's an, a, a you know a, a, I think a UN envoy, I guess he is for climate change and maybe some other stuff uh, for the Biden administration was forced to admit that Biden was like kept in the dark about like major <laughs> policy issues that that whole um, kerfuffle with uh, France and the whole uh, Australia UK US uh, shift in uh in in policy there that uh angered France apparently Biden had no idea about any of that uh per John yeah. Kerry's own admission so people that are still you know being like yeah well it's it's Biden doing all of this i mean well okay well, I if a, if a discussion you know requires that you stay awake for more than 20 minutes <laughs> you know that might be uh might be tricky. Well, he couldn't him. even do know. that with uh, uh, Naftali Bennett, the new prime minister of Israel, his first visit to the U.S. So Biden obviously fell asleep in the middle of that. <laughs> no, I, I remember. I remember the media saying, "It is not true. <laughs> it is not true. He didn't fall asleep." Although, quite obviously, he did. <laughs> uh, well, you know, they have a much harder job, arguably, this time than they did with Trump, where it was everything he does is bad. Now they have to justify all of the insane things that come out of the Biden administration as being something other than what it very clearly is. It's, um, well, you know, at least, at least they're keeping themselves busy in mainstream media. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, but and I mean, I think when you were talking about what can we do about this and you, I mean, we, he, it's an easy thing to say not vote as in as in you know you I'm I'm opposed to the idea of voting but it's not engaging in that charade as you said it's yeah. it's not it's not engaging not spending a moment imagining that this has any real meaning it's just a, it's just a uh, it's bread and circuses it's just offered to us to keep us interested 
And again, I would say, you know, to keep us believing because what we think, what we think matters to them at the moment. For now. And that is something we really have to capitalize <laughs> uh, on why we can. And, um, you know, in the UK right now, there's this push to um, uh, eliminate un- un- online anonymity uh, and basically um, the ability of of one to post what they want on social media. So the uh, online censorship hammer is definitely going to get um, much bigger as uh, the months advance. We'll see how long that window will be, but it's really, um, I think, incumbent on, on all of us, whether you're, um, you know, uh, a content uh, consumer as opposed to a content creator. I mean, it really doesn't matter. Um, it, this is a very critical window for educating the public. And, you know, even if that just means your circle of family and friends and what have you, um, about where the, the power, you know, what the agenda is, who's executing it. Um, and some of the stuff we've been, we've been, we've been talking about today among, among other important topics, because really, um, that window is starting to close. And in terms of who came up with this policy for, you know, what's, what's, what was called under the Obama administration, the driver's license for the internet. You know, this isn't mm. something exclusive to the new, uh, push in the UK, uh, David's law, as it's being called. Um, it, it's something that the Obama administration tried and failed to implement. Um, Australia, the EU previously tried and failed to implement it. Um, and now it's making a comeback because they think they can make it stick this time. Um, so, you know, things like, uh, that need to be resisted, uh, hugely. I mean, just stop using social media, let them destroy social media and their attempts to control it. Um, and the same thing with CBDCs. I mean, that should be a red line that no one, uh, should allow themselves, uh, to, uh, cross. Anyone listening to this podcast that willingly engages in the CBDC, uh, system, having, having listened to everything we've talked about today and also, you know, some of, uh, uh, my previous episodes, uh, that, that is something you should, if you're not going to draw the line at, at other things like vaccine passports and whatever, draw it there. Uh, because once, uh, you are willing to partake in, in the system to that extent, your ability to get extricate yourself from that system at a later date, if you so choose, uh, will likely be impossible. So, you know, before it gets yeah, to that, that point, we need to build something else. Yeah, and absolutely. And we're talking about the thing when we were talking earlier about the little things that we can do every day with the kind of simple things that we can do to resist this. Use cash and refuse not to use cash. If you go, if you go into a business and they say they won't take cash, then don't use that business. Uh, it, we have to stand on our principles if we're gonna if we're gonna you know uh, uh, I mean and of course you can't always do that I mean there would there will be times where you know you have to buy something online or or you need to buy something online or or whatever you know of course we can't all be these perfect paragons of virtue all the time but on print you know broadly speaking we can do really simple things like that just use cash. And if they won't accept cash, then go somewhere else that does. Because that's if we do that in sufficient numbers, what you think businesses are gonna are gonna let cash die if if you know significant part of their business is paid in cash? Yeah, that's a good point, and I think that's the the uh, impulse behind Cash Friday, as a uh, Catherine Austin Fitz yeah. calls it. Yeah. Um, I know other people yeah. have promoted that. 
um, as well. But really, yeah, uh, the alternative system we have to the digital one, um, needs to be used and used regularly. Conveniently, uh, where I'm, you know, uh, uh, where I am at in, in Chile, it's very easy to use, <laughs> to use cash. And I have no idea how they're going to phase that out here. Uh, it's going to be really hard, but they've gotten the Chilean populace to do a lot of crazy, uh, crazy stuff in the, <laughs> in the past year and a half. So who knows? Um, but you know, it, it definitely depends on people using it regularly. And if a lot of the glue, most of the glue holding the system together for these guys is financial control. Um, you know, we need to, I, I mean, what, what you just laid out is a very, I mean, it's essentially a passive way of, of, of resisting that's uh, much more effective than something like voting. Yeah. Um, or you could argue even, uh, protesting in the streets to a significant degree because, uh, those protests, they don't get media coverage anymore. Um, you know, or at least mainstream media. It's not really reaching people who are not going to be within the visible, uh, range of that protest, right? So there may be a lot of people who, um, you know, you're trying to reach that may never know it even happened or how many people were there or anything like that, right? So, you know, this is something that can be done on an individual level that's, really quite simple. And I would argue, um, as, as you did, uh, quite effective. Um, uh, is there anything else you'd like to add, um, in terms of solutions? Well, well, I think certainly we need to be supportive of each other. I mean, there, there is, there is, a, uh, um, how can we describe it? I mean, it, it is a form of apartheid is, 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 is what's rapidly approaching us. So people that are not vaccinated, are going to be treated as an underclass. And so we're going to have to support each other because that's the reality. I mean, all the things that you imagine that you think are unspeakable or unimaginable, you need to start thinking that they're not because um, that's the way we're heading. So we that are not going to comply do need to form networks with each other and we do need to support each other and we do need to trade with each other and we need to, you know, exchange goods and services with each other. I mean, one of the things that, that it, it depends how this unfolds, but, a, you know, if they start making access to, you know, business difficult for people that are unvaccinated then we are going to have to engage in counter economics that, that you know and we're going to have to be able to trade on you know quote unquote the black market when the, these are things that we not out of choice but out of necessity because it is it's that bad if they if they're willing to sack nhs doctors which looks like a distinct possibility if they are willing to sack NHS doctors who do not comply, then obviously this is no longer about any kind of health concern. Because why on earth would you sack a doctor from what is undoubtedly an overstretched health service for no reason other than the fact that they do not comply with the government? So it's not that there's a health. There isn't even a health argument to be made. The, the British Prime Minister said yesterday or the day before that the vaccines do not stop the spread of the virus and do not stop you getting infected with the virus. So there is no health or medical justification whatsoever 
for vaccine mandates or for um, uh, vaccine passports. Because all that they are, if, if you accept that they work the way that they claim that they work, then all that they are is something that reduces the likelihood of you becoming unwell with COVID-19, which means it's a personal choice about your personal risk. You're not taking a vaccine to protect anybody else because they, they don't stop transmission of the so-called virus. So it, it's, a, it's a nonsense argument. So if they're, and, doc, and, what, and you think doctors don't know that. Of course, doctors know that. So if you're going to if the government are going to sack doctors, then what they are saying is we are sacking you not because there's any reason or not because there's any any health argument or medical argument that we can make. We're going to sack you because you will not comply with the state. And that is, you know, it is where we're heading it is, and where we and that's, I would argue, partly what this whole thing has been about. It's been to cajole, cajole people into a mindset where they are absolutely convinced that the only way that they can live is total subservience to the diktat of the state. And that's what, uh, you know, Frostler, Giorgio Gambon and people like that spoke about when he spoke about the biosecurity state. You will jump through hoops. You will behave like a performing monkey in order to comply with the orders of the state. And that is a fundamental change of any kind of idea that we have about democracy or democratic accountability or anything like that. <laughs> it's not even in the same, uh, like, planet <laughs> as, as, oh. as democracy. I mean, it's an entirely different system. Uh, anyone yeah. that, that thinks, you know, it, getting to that stage of jumping through hoops to obey any edict uh, that's claim to be scientific when it's actually not and all of that's I mean so much of that is happening right now and it's um it's uh very stunning to see the the degree of compliance in Chile specifically I mean it's it's uh a lot of people are uh you know in turn Chile is one of the more compliant countries uh, in in this regard uh and that's saying quite a lot um, you could, um, I don't know. Uh, I guess you could argue maybe it has to do with, uh, maybe the consequences of the Pinochet era to a significant degree and what's happened since. Um, but it's, uh, it's quite, it's quite astounding how willing people are, um, how far people are willing to go with this whole carrot and stick thing of, oh, you can have your privileges back if you do this, that, and this, um, and not realizing that, you know, the, uh, the steps, the things you have to do in order to allegedly re re regain and maintain your privileges is going to be ever expanding and ever, ever changing. Um, as the technocrats seem fit, uh, uh Chile Chileans in general are totally oblivious to that. And I think that's probably true, um, in other countries as well, um, to a significant degree. Um, I think one of the reasons too, it's so bad here is there's no, there's no independent media at all. Um, a lot of that is exclusive to English speaking countries, uh, more often than not. Um, uh, from what I've seen anyway, not a lot of, um, movement in, in Spanish language, um, media outlets. I mean, they're <laughs> here. Everyone watches TV and it's either state TV, uh, the BBC equivalent for Chile or it's, um, you know, um, a couple of corporate owned channels or CNN Chile. That's pretty much all they're, 
where people are getting their media here. So you can uh, assume <laughs> how that's gone. Uh, not well. So, um, but that is an advantage uh, people in the English speaking world uh, certainly have. Not for long. <laughs> <laughs> no, not for long. But why we do have it, um, I would like to um, encourage people to support uh, your work, Ian, and uh, uh, look at purchasing your your new book. So, if you could tell people how they can find your uh, uh, written work, including the article that we that we focused on today, um, as well as uh, your book and your other books as well, um, and how they can support your work, um, if you could let uh, listeners know that. Uh, yeah, it's uh, in this together dot com with uh, hyphens between the words. So it's in hyphen this hyphen dot uh, together dot com. Um, and yeah, the book is freely available for download on my, on my um, website. If you uh, just uh, drop me your email and subscribe, then uh, you, the book is free. Um, uh, but obviously that's the electronic copy. If people want to get hold of a um, physical copy, then it is available also from my website, so they can do that as well. Uh, and all my all my work um, is on my website. Um, so yeah, so it's uh, in this together. But on somebody else, uh, you know, I also write for uh, the UK column, which is ukcolumn.org. Um, uh, UK column is all one word. Um, yeah, and they've been absolutely solid throughout all of this. I mean, they've been putting out some really fantastic content. So, um, so yeah, please give UK Column a, a, a check out. And obviously, um, you know, I need to thank the Off Guardian as well for sharing my work because, you know, it was it's very difficult um, to get your work noticed without working collaborative collaboratively it's with very other true. people. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, I, and that is something that actually I would say, actually, Whitney, that we really need to get our heads around in the in the alternative media, because, you know, the the, the what do the mainstream media do? They're constantly referencing each other. They've got a, they've got a, they're building a link wheel, basically. You know, so they're, yeah. they're, they're, they're they are they're doing it. And I think I think it's. It is a, one of a little gripe of mine the way that you know there are a lot of a few little conflicts in the alternative media kind of you know scene I suppose and yeah. it is, and it and it's unfortunate because I think we really need to forget about those at the moment and put them to one side and work together. I mean, obviously there's a lot of infiltration as well, which doesn't help. <laughs> no, not not at all. But yeah, I think I think there is uh, among some. Um, certainly the, the UK outlets that, that you, uh, named, uh, tend to be more collaborative than, uh, some of their US counterparts, that's for sure. Um, but it, it definitely is a problem that I hope, um, will be amelior- ameliorated at some point. Unfortunately, um, and I don't know if this is necessarily more common among US independent media than UK independent media. Um, but there does seem to be a, a tendency among some uh, to place uh, brand and brand security <laughs> over um, what they will report on. And, and if they report on a particular topic, if they will cite uh, people's work um, who sort of uh, laid the foundation for for that. You know, there's been uh, some issues <laughs> Uh, I, I obviously don't yeah. want to go into specifics about no, it, no, no, but no, no, I, no, I think no, definitely... You know, in, in alternative, uh, media, there, there definitely does need to be a shift for, for some. Um, I think there are some sort of, uh, behind the scenes networks, uh, that have sort of uh, formed to an extent in terms of getting, 
uh, important content distributed. Um, but it definitely needs to go a lot farther. So thanks for, um, for mentioning that. That's, that's a good point. There are a lot of criticisms to be made, um, of alternative media as well, but it is worth noting that it, it you know, it's been a hard climate. Uh, the past year and a half, not just because of the censorship, a lot of people haven't been willing to stick their necks out. Um, it, specifically last year, uh, we're seeing some, some shifts, uh, start to happen, uh, there. Hopefully they're, uh, genuine. <laughs> um, but, you know, we can only hope that, uh, more people who have seen, uh, what has been going on and have platforms are, uh, willing to engage with that uh, information now, uh, realizing <laughs> that so much is on the line. Um, because, you know, ultimately, if there's any point when you have ever challenged um, the official narrative of of the state um, in any capacity, uh, you know, you're not going to be spared uh, the censorship hammer down the line. It's not like they're going to favor uh, you over the Washington Post or the New York Times or something like that. And there have been... Um, some quote unquote anti-imperialist, uh, outlets in both the US and the UK that have, um, been, been quite, um, unfriendly to those that, uh, have questioned some of the prevailing orthodoxies of COVID-19 narratives. Uh, hopefully there is a change of heart there, um, or at least a willingness to address things, um, uh, that are of concern to all groups. Uh, and, and sort of bypass the whole vaccine, uh, debate in its entirety, things, uh, that involve sort of this push towards, uh, the fourth industrial revolution and the automation and thus elimination of jobs, this effort to create a, what is essentially an anti-human, uh, future, uh, central bank digital currencies, all of that. None of that has to do with the concerns that, or the disagreements that arose over COVID-19. Uh, is it really as bad as they say? Is it not? Whatever. I mean, that debate at this point, um, doesn't even really have to be relevant for these people to be talking about some of the topics that are, are pressing. But unfortunately, some, uh, wish to act like it's still 2019, um, in terms of the content, uh, they're covering and, and, uh, you know, uh, their, uh, unfriendly attitude towards, uh, skeptics. So hopefully they, we see a change of heart. Uh, in in that regard, sooner rather than later. That's my hope, anyway. No, I hope you're right, and you made a very good point there because you're right. I mean, we're beyond that at the moment. I mean, when we're looking at things like central bank digital currency and and the the total transformation of the international financial and monetary system, it, it it's well, what it's almost as if you know the idea of the, the debates that that we would have about you know the pandemic are irrelevant, really. I think they want us still focused on that forever (laughs) to be focused on those divisions and not talk about this other stuff. I think that's ultimately what the powers that be are hoping uh, alternative media does um, arguing amongst themselves about things that have already happened. That sort of happened with 9-11 in the U.S. to an extent, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, even now, I mean, People just, I think, and part of the, I also reason part of the reason that I wrote the book because I wanted to demonstrate in the book that this is not about a disease. You know, this isn't this isn't about people being ill and 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 that kind of thing. It's not about public health. That isn't the focus of the policy trajectory. The policy trajectory is is using and exploiting public health. But public health is not the issue. 
the issue, the issue is transformation. And it is transformation primarily of the international financial and monetary system, but it's also transformation of us. It's, it's, it's transformation of society, and it's even transformation of us as a species. I mean, they, they no, that's a great point. <laughs> you know, they, they they are. You look at the, some of the things. I mean, some of the things that you read. You know, that Klaus Schwab has written, for example, Klaus Schwab. It's it's insane. I mean, you, you you would actually think that, you know, if you'd have picked this up at any other period in history, you would look at it and think, wow, that guy's, you know, he's really out there. You know, the same the same kind of things that that people might accuse. So, quote unquote, the so-called conspiracy theorists of that this is lunatic fringe stuff. Well, if you read what he has written, it is lunatic fringe. He's stuff. the lunatic fringe guy. Yeah, great point. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, it is, it's pretty far out there. I mean, and, and but this is the this is the, the the part of that that we that we need to understand. His ideas are part of this global public private partnership, this network of policy creators who do not look at Klaus Schwab and think he's a lunatic fringe. These are crazy ideas. They've got a lengthy history of being very, very interested in transforming us as a society and as people. And, you know, the whole eugenics agenda and all that kind of stuff, they are absolutely steeped in it. And if you're aware of that, when you look at the policies, you can see it. You, it, it's it's evident in their policies. If you if you, I always kind of think it's not like that. I mean, I think it's an overused term, but I mean, I, at the moment, I think it's important that we consider what it actually means in terms of awakening, or or even, um, you know, it's. I hate saying it because to me it sounds arrogant and it sounds like oh I'm right, listen to me, and you know, but but I think we need to if once you can see it. You 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 won't ever unsee it. Once you understand where these people come from, what their interests are and what their objectives are and why they want to shape policy. When you understand that historical context and also the modern economic and industrial and social objectives of their of their policy ideas, once you get a grip of that, then pretty much everything we see it just shines out of it it you, you can you can analyze anything any modern government policy and see that that where that what how that supports that agenda in any policy you can pick it up and say well right how does this policy su- policy support the transformation agenda and it and they all do they all do and we're ahead, and that's that's where we're heading. Yeah, I, I really hope more people start to focus um, on on this on the particular aspects of this transformation agenda because uh, it's, it's probably clear to you, um, Ian, and, and considering how much time you uh, spent on it in, in your book, I, I think it is that they, they've they've really are moving away from the COVID narrative, or at least moving towards a revised COVID narrative that includes climate change and a lot of this. Um, SDG, uh, green finance, which is digital trans, uh, 
you know, transformation of our relationship with the natural world. Uh, but this is also happening, you know, um, in, in terms of, you know, um, health services. It's definitely happening in the NHS, uh, with NHSX, this, this push to digitally transform, uh, healthcare that's also ongoing in the United States and other places as well. I mean, this is something that's happening in every facet of society. Um, you could argue that the, uh, and, and I think, uh, it, it's quite true that vaccine passports are really just a, a way to sort of usher in this digital ID um, that's, uh, you know, has your medical records and your central bank digital currency wallet on it and all of this stuff tied together in a, in a centralized system. It is sort of the first uh, step towards that. But, you know, in, in alternative media and, and also among a lot of people that are consumers of inter- alternative media, um, we are still focused primarily on um, stuff that has already happened um, or or stuff that sort of, uh, you know, is specific only to the COVID-19 uh, situation. And I think it's really uh, time that we start incorporating uh, some more of this because we also have to preempt the narratives and the events before they happen um, as well. And we're already seeing a lot of this buzz around net zero and climate change. I mean, obviously, it's going to become um, a lot more extreme uh, over the course of November and I think December as well. Um, but we really have to start um, educating people about this stuff. Um, and so I think, um, you know, um, there needs to be a, a shift there in terms of content a little bit as well. And that doesn't mean like, don't, I'm not saying people should stop covering COVID-19 or anything like that. But I think we definitely need to um, keep our eye on where the ball is moving, because certainly the powers that be are, um, and we can't really afford to not see where uh, they are taking things, and there's a lot more going on than just um, uh, the vaccine at this point, you know? No, yeah, no, I couldn't agree anymore. I, I mean, I mean, we've already heard, haven't we, from uh, the economist uh, Mariana Mazzucati, wasn't it, that, that wrote about um, climate lockdown? Yeah, I think The Guardian wrote about it as well. There's a few yeah, other... The mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean... I mean, and that's that. It's the as you you used a very good term earlier, cross pollination. They're thinking in terms of systems. They're thinking into. I mean, and this which which gets to the point about how do we respond to it? Then we respond to it by decentralising a non-systematic approach. But they're they're thinking of it in terms of systems. So they're lining up their systems at the moment, and that is that is pretty evident. So they are lining up their control systems to lead us to a point where. In order for us to trans, the first stage, you know, in my view, and I could well be wrong about this, and I'm, I am speculating here, but in my view, will be economic collapse. But at that point, when 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 economic collapse occurs, of course, that is going to throw the world into a turmoil, unlike anything we've seen. You know, I mean, it's it's not going to make. I mean, you know, I mean, you could argue that there there is no pandemic. I mean, in my view, there's never been a pandemic. But nonetheless, obviously, it's been a very traumatic period in a lot of people's lives. And, you know, I you know, totally accept that. But when the world is thrown into economic collapse, which which is highly likely, in my view, then that will be a point where they need to have got their control systems in place. Yeah. So that so is a process. So the first thing they've got to do is get us onto CBDC, or get us get us used to the biometric controls and the tracking and the tracing and the and the social credit score. Get us accustomed to that. How long will that take? Who knows? Because we we seem to have become accustomed to this these things very very quickly. Some people have. 
Some people in Chile with the uh, vaccine passport here, they call it a mobility pass, um, are, are, they are asked to present it in order to enter a restaurant, for example, and are thrilled. <laughs> I've seen it on the faces of some people, very proud uh, to show their, their little QR code, um, show what good citizens they are. So yeah, it definitely has moved fast um, in, in some ways. Yeah. But I think um, uh, pursuant to your point, they need a controlled demolition of the current economic system in order to introduce and force widespread adoption of their new system, right? So I think economic collapse um, is in the cards, but it will be at a time uh, of their choosing, I think. And that will be once central bank digital currencies advance uh, slightly yeah. more. We appear to be at the white paper stage of most central bank digital currencies, how long between the white paper stage and it being ready for implementation. Uh, it remains to be seen. We know that China is piloting, has been piloting theirs um, most of this year, the digital yuan, complete with an expiration date imposed by the central bank on the yuan, so you can't decide if you save or spend. Uh, they decide that for you. Um, that's, you know, how they're starting. And Russia. And Russia. <laughs> right. And we have, uh, we know that Britcoin, the UK CBDC is in development. We know that Fedcoin is in development. New Zealand's announced theirs. Chile has announced theirs. Uh, many mm-hmm. governments are currently working on this. Um, Visa um, has talked about a framework for uh, seamless exchange between CBDCs on the global scale. They've already set that up. It's advanced quite rapidly in the past year and a half, which is why I wish more people would talk about it because it is uh, coming quite quickly. But does that mean it'll be in two months? Uh, I don't know, but I think people need to, um, you know, pay attention to CBDCs and how they develop, because I think that'll also inform the timing of uh, the controlled demolition of the current system as well. But I think, um, you know, uh, John Titus, who came on my last episode to talk specifically about CBDCs, thought that we uh, still have a good bit of time between then and now. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, I I hope he's right, and I hope you're right too. But, <laughs> the, but the problem is that is that, that is assuming that the white papers are only just been written. Ah, uh, shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they could have, they yeah, could have written 10 point. years ago, for yeah. all we know. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, I think the key is the base rate. The economic situation at the moment cannot withstand any hike in the base rate. If the base rate goes up, that is going to cause a collapse pretty quickly. So I think that's the thing to look for. If the base, and they're already talking about it. They're already saying, oh, we're going to have to, you know, inflation, we're going to, which they've caused, absolutely have they right. caused that mm-hmm. by printing money out on a on a stupid scale. I mean, <laughs> yeah. the, the, I mean the fact is that the, the fact that they've done that demonstrates that they've got absolutely no interest in maintaining the, the current international monetary and financial system. They've got no interest in it. It's a dead duck as far as they're concerned. So they knew that. They were talking about that in 2019, and they've been talking about the digital currency for a lot longer. So if they push the base rate up, I mean, at the moment, the, the, the last time that the uh, the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey, was talking about it, or it was actually it was Hugh Pill was talking about it, they were talking about 0.75%. Well, 0.75% would be pretty harsh for a lot of people, but, I mean, 
if you look at the scale of of the national debt and of the quantitative easing, if it goes up 1.5, 2, 3, if they push the base rate up that by that much, that's it. That is it. That's game over. And that is when it will happen. So they could they appear to be poised and ready to do that. But I mean, you know, I mean, like I said, I'm speculating, I don't know. But they're they're certainly talking about it. Right. Well, these are all things worth considering. I mean, no one really has a crystal ball to know when they're going to pull the plug, except for the people that will be doing the pulling of the plug. Right. (laughs) So, (laughs) um, you know, the best we can do is try and sort of anticipate their movements to an extent. But going back to my prior point, I think that's also why it's so important to preempt narratives, understand what they plan to offer as the solution when these events happen and have inform as many people around you as you possibly can um, that that's going to happen, whether you have a large on- online platform or not. Any person you can talk to about it that you think will be receptive, please um, consider doing that. Um, uh, anyway, we've been going about uh, ooh, close to two hours, so um, I'll, I'll probably be wrapping it up here. Do you have any concluding thoughts uh, you'd like to add? You already told people how they can uh, find your work, though. I don't know if you mentioned how they could support you, um, if you'd like to add that in. Um, yeah, um, I, there's a there's a page on my on my website where I'll be you know more than happy to take a donation if people like to kindly offer um, a donation. That would be greatly appreciated. But um, you know, I mean, I don't um, nothing nothing is paywalled. I don't I don't I don't sell anything. I just I mean, obviously, if you want my book, um, um, I'll make a small profit on that. But I mean, that's that, you know, I mean, you can get the book for free. You don't need to buy it. That's the point. And because I, I don't want people to have to be behind i don't want anything that i do to be behind a paywall or anything like that so um yeah um but if people would like to donate you can do so through my website and that would be greatly appreciated um and i'd just like to say that the reason that i chose the name in this together many many years ago was because it was being bandied around at the time by the conservative government after the financial crash and the first and the then the the first thing that struck you about the about the use of the term in this together that was that we collectively are in this together we you know the people who suffer from from economic hardship which is caused by the policies of these people we're in it together um but they're not and you know we need to remember that that we, that we are together and that we need to act collectively we need to support each other we need to be kind to each other we need to be humane to each other and, and that's 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 what we need to do if we're going to get through this because it's going to be difficult and it's going to be hard but i'd just like to thank you very much whitney for having me on it's been a pleasure i've really appreciated it yeah likewise um thank you so much for your time and for uh, a great conversation hope i i'm i'm Quite sure that uh, listeners, especially regular listeners of this podcast, will uh, particularly enjoy this episode. And I think it's a really important topic. So um, if you enjoyed, please consider sharing widely um, with people uh, you know, both on social media and and elsewhere. Um, and uh, thank you, a special thank you to everyone who supports this podcast, uh, either through Rockfin or directly through my website, um, unlimitedhangout.com. If you'd like to support the podcast through my website, you can go to unlimitedhangout.com slash join. Uh, well, thanks so much uh, for listening and uh, catch you all on the next episode.